Romans 12, and it's uh, just verses 9 to 21, and we're calling this collection of talks, Love Without Limits. Love Without Limits. And we're just simply working through these verses that starts about having a genuine love. It's, it's aimed at our love towards each other, our love towards those brothers and sisters amongst us right now. As you look around, look around. You could look around. <laughs> the love that we have for each other. And so we're just going to look at one verse this morning, just verse 12, but let me just read the build-up to that, verses 9 through 12. It says, Let love be genuine. Before what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. And then the verse we're going to look at today, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. God, we just thank you this morning. Thank you for your presence. Lord, I thank you that something special happens when we gather. And Lord, we prioritize these times in our week just to gather together to celebrate all that you're doing. And Lord, we just ask that for those this morning that may be struggling to rejoice in hope, may be constant in tribulation. And prayer just really seems like a struggle. Lord, I just ask Holy Spirit, will you just start to come? Just present yourself here. Be real to us this morning. Lord, I just pray for this school. We pray this morning, the day we pray, Lord, as we gather in this space, something special will happen. And Lord, it would be simply your presence that is here that will cause people, young people in this school, to even think, oh, I've never thought about you, God, but for some reason I'm just thinking about you. Something will start to stir in the school. Because your presence is here in Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Can I talk about kids for a minute? Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Let me talk about kids for a minute. I love kids. Okay? I love my kids, uh, they're a blessing. Um, and there's that moment in life where Cara and I, and I didn't know Cara was going to be in here, so um, <laughs> I'll tell the truth. But you look longingly into each other's eyes, and you kind of kept. We were looking at photos of ourselves yesterday, my parents' wedding anniversary, and they had photos of them. And I was like, look how fresh faced we looked before we had kids. And how naively we just looked at each other, and it's like, shall we? Shall we, shall we, shall we have kids? Shall we just enjoy extending out and it's just like we just had no clue whatsoever <laughs> about the reality of having kids we're just like all oh, these little knees and little knees running around it's gonna be, we're gonna have the perfect instagram family as we just take in the autumn we'll frolic in the leaves and just throw them around it's just gonna be phenomenal and then reality happens more than meets the eye if you want to type for this morning service it's more than meets the eye because when you have kids you think it's gonna be like this perfect thing and then they come along. And it's more than meets the eye, isn't it? Nobody tells you about that first nappy. Oh my goodness me. I mean, you should, you should kind of, it's logic, nine months in the womb should tell you that that first nappy's not gonna be the greatest nappy in the world. But no one tells you that it's like tar and you just can't get rid of it. I mean, we've got a special name for it, it's that bad. And then you're gonna have nappies for like the next three years. And then you decide to have a second one, then you've got another load of nappies. Can I tell you, I'm fed up with nappies. And Kara sat there going, you don't even change them. <laughs> no, I don't, I'm still fed up with them. 
What's that ribbon you want? Mommy to change your nappy. Okay, so the boy wants. If I ever do that to you, it's uh, I'm confessing right now. I just because I hate changing nappies. Just, just want to get out of it everywhere. But there's more than meets the eye, and it's the same as we're following Jesus. We follow Jesus, and we we almost have that high. I remember the high that I got when I surrendered my life to Him, and I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. I was I was a youth camp, and I was like, I want to live in this youth camp for the rest of my life. And then I went back to school, and I'm like, I found Jesus. It's not like he was lost, I was lost, but you know, we say that thing, I found you, and the other kids at school were like, okay, we're just going to stand over here as long as you're standing over there. And you just have a little bit of a crash, and it's back to reality. This is more than meets the eye. You may have been following Jesus for a little while, and you know that not every day feels like you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. We're crushing Satan with every prayer, and we're just living that abundant life. Some days feel like I am just hopeless in hope. I am constant in tribulation and there's just not a chance that I can pray today. That's sometimes the reality we find ourselves because being a Christian there is more than meets the eye. We read these verses from Paul and he's writing to a church in Rome and he's writing to these Gentile and Jewish believers and we can be excused for thinking that Paul's life is hunky-dory. Paul's life is really quite amazing. I mean, he's been used by God to write scripture. He is traveling around the ancient Near East and he is planting churches and he's teaching and preaching. It's like, God, what an amazing life you got, Paul. You know, as Paul is writing to this church in Rome, most scholars agree that it's around 57 AD. If you look at the timeline of Paul's life, 57 AD is the same year that Paul will be arrested again. You can read about his first arrest in Acts 16. Acts 16 sees Paul and Silas in this Roman colony called Philippi and they're strolling through and they're seeing people get saved and come to Jesus and they're walking towards uh, having their daily prayers and this, this demon-possessed girl starts shouting out. These are, are telling people about the truth of God. And they're trying to do it on the quiet because it's like, we don't really want to get arrested so we're doing it on the quiet, seeing people getting saved, just trying to keep it on the low key. And this girl is shouting out. And so they walk up to her and cast the spirit out. She's set free from this spirit that was, uh, was able to tell the future and was fortune-telling. And her slave owners would, would sell her to people to tell their fortune. And she's set free. But then the slave owners aren't that happy because their income stream has stopped. And so they get Paul and Silas thrown in prison. And so they're in prison. And while they're in the midst of prison, Paul and Silas start to sing their songs of worship. Just amazing. You've got to read it, Acts 16, the walls start coming down and amazing things happen. And Paul, in this, as he writes to this Roman church, he's facing just that very year being put in prison again. He'll be shipwrecked. He'll be put under house arrest. That means everywhere he goes, he's going to have an armed guard to his left and an armed guard to his right. He'll be thrown in prison and uh, early church historians uh, believe that under the, uh, the order of Emperor Nero that Paul was then beheaded. This is the life of Paul. Yet in the midst of prison, he starts to sing. In fact, in the midst of prison, he will write four letters in the New Testament. And he will write the books, the, the epistles, it just means letters, of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Read those books, let me encourage you. You can read those books and it's just phenomenal the amount of hope, the amount of joy that is happening in those books. 
and he's writing whilst he is in chains in prison. Whilst in prison, probably months from death, Paul writes things like Philippians 4.4, which we love to put on our fridge. Rejoice in the Lord always, I say again, rejoice. It's like, Paul, that makes no sense. You're in prison, chained, and months later, uh, we assume months later, he's going to die. So we assume that he knows what's happening. He knows the Emperor Nero, and he certainly knows the Emperor Nero's attitude towards Christians. And yet he's able to cry out, rejoice in the Lord always, I say again, rejoice. It it changes the meaning, doesn't it, of that verse, when we know the context of where Paul finds himself. You see, Paul understands something. He has grasped in his life that his joy, his ability to rejoice, is not based on his circumstances. It's not based on what is going on around him. He has realised that he needs to rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. See, the foundation, the bedrock of Paul's joy is not circumstances, it's hope. It means that no matter what he's going through, and he writes it here, rejoice in hope. No matter what I'm going through, no matter what I'm facing, I can still rejoice I can still have joy. Why? Because his joy is not defined by his circumstance. It's not defined by his DNA. Just a positive person. Just the glass is always half full of me, I can't help it. Just put on the happy face. I'm just Mr. Optimistic, it's just who I am. It's just part part of who I am. And it's not because he's got everything he's ever prayed for. I just pray for him. God just gives it to me. I can't help but be happy because he just gives everything to me. See, it's, it's not based on his circumstance. It's not based on his chemistry. It's not based on his career and all his stuff. Paul's joy is grounded in hope. So I'm quite a simple person when I read scripture. I see rejoice in hope and I'm thinking, hope? Is hope really all it's cracked up to me? Rejoice in hope. You see, the word hope to us means we we hope something will happen. We're not sure that it's going to happen, but we hope it's going to happen. So this week I took my car to Dave. Oh dear, I wish I hadn't. (laughs) Not because he's a bad mechanic, just because that's some bad news. I knew that the car was, bless her, she's done 180,000 miles. She's a workhorse. And uh, for 178,000 of those miles is what she's actually done. Uh, I, I got in her and I, I knew that she was going to get me from A to B. Never even crossed my mind. Just just loved that car. Just got a dent in every corner. It's been through everything with me. We've done so many thousand miles together. Uh, and I just love the car. But now I get in the car and I hope it gets me from A to B. I'm getting in and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to get a new car because the, the, the work that needs doing is about eight times the value of the car, so it's really not worth getting the work done. So I'm getting in and I'm going, I just hope you get me from A to B. Just really. See, so for us, the word hope doesn't mean guaranteed, does it? So why can we rejoice in hope? Oh, because the biblical term hope, that means something really different. The term hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's not like you get your birthday cake and it's, oh, make a wish. 
Blow out candles and make a wish. That's not what hope in the Bible means. Hope in the Bible has a certainty. Hope in the Bible, it says, God has promised something is going to happen or has spoken something over our lives because we are his children and we can have a certainty in that. Certainty, a hope that it is reality because God has said so. That is biblical hope. So in spite of everything I am seeing, everything I am hearing, I know that God is for me. Even though circumstance would suggest he's forgotten about me, I can rejoice in hope in the certainty that God is with me in the midst of this. That God is for me because his word tells me he is. So I have a certain hope in that. See, hope is an ingredient to faith. Scripture says faith is being sure of what you hope for. See, sure, pretty, pretty darn certain of what you do not see. So faith, hope is an ingredient of faith. It's like the, the baking powder to the cake of faith. It's the rising agent of faith. So when our faith is low, we have hope. We can say, God, I can cling to everything you've said because what you said is true, even though I don't see it right now. Hope is faith in future tense. Hope says, right now I'm struggling, but I know tomorrow you are God. And you remain God yesterday, today, and forever. As followers of Jesus, our hope is unique among all of the hopes on the planet. It's not attached to our emotions, it's not attached to our plans, it's not attached to our relationships or our finance. But our hope is attached to a person called Jesus Christ. Our souls have a sure and steadfast, immovable anchor, Hebrews tells us. He is secure. He steadies our souls. Because he doesn't change and he doesn't move. So our hope can be secure in him. See, we know that verse, don't we? Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. I accidentally made a mistake one year at youth. I'm just telling this story. At a youth camp, we used to write in people's Bibles. And uh, I, I love that verse, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. I always forget whether it's Philippians 4.4 or Philippians 3.3. And so I just thought, oh, is it Philippians 4? I'm just going to put 3.3. So we're driving home in the minibus on the way home. And I looked up, I was like, I'm doubting whether it's Philippians 4.4 or Philippians 3.3. And so I looked up Philippians 3.3, and instead of saying, rejoice in the Lord always, I say again, rejoice, I'd given this verse, to, I can't remember who it was to, but it said, we are the truly circumcised ones. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a blunder. So I'm going to try and remember Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, rather than Philippians 3.3. But I wonder whether we have Philippians 4.3 memorised as well as we have Philippians 4.4 4 memorised. We celebrate and we rejoice in the Lord always. We whack it on our fridge. We, we've got posters of it. It's written. We, we highlight it. We underline it. But we've got Philippians 4, 3 memorised. It's a little bit less catchy. Let me just read it to you. It says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. I'm not too sure who the true companion is. It may be people that he's writing to. Here. He says, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Less catchy, guaranteed. But have you ever thought about memorising that verse? Oh, we like rejoice in the Lord always. Say again, rejoice. We'll memorise that one. What about the verse before it? 
I'm not sure why I've memorized it particularly because it's talking about these women who have labored together with Paul and somebody called Clement. I'm glad Clement got a mention in scripture, but I don't know who he is, but that's all good. So why would I make, just look at the last little phrase, whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are written in a book called life. And as, as, as Paul writes that, Something happens as the Spirit of God has inspired the book. His names are written in the book. Oh, I'm to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, I say again, rejoice. As, as Paul is penning this, he is infused by the Holy Spirit, and an overwhelming sense of rejoicing comes because it's not about the work they've done. It's not about the people necessarily, but what stirs Paul and what should stir us is the hope of the fact that our names are in the book of life. Yeah. That should cause us to rejoice in hope. What book? Is this some dusty volume pushed into the backyards of heaven? No, 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 this is the roll call of heaven. This is the book that says, come in and enter my rest. The place where there is no more tears, there is no more pain, where the old is gone, the new has come. Your name is written in that book. Oh, that we would grasp the hope that can rise when we know that eternity is secure. When you grasp that your name is known by God. That when we confess our sins, when we turn from that stuff and we cry out to him, he gets out this heavenly pen. I don't know what it looks like, but he goes, I'm going to write your name in. It's going in. And we can confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. And he writes our name in. Can I tell you something? There ain't no heavenly eraser that suddenly comes out when we have an off day. Oh, just seeing what John's done there. Let's uh, cross that one out. Really, he's not welcome. Scrub that out. Do you know the irony of a series called A Love Without Limits? Is that God has limited his love. God's love is limited. He has limited his love to the degree that when you cry out to him, he will forgive you. When you cry out to him and surrender your life to him, he doesn't say, well, hang on a minute, you've got you to do this, this, and this before you're welcome. He says, no, no, I'm limiting myself to say, I will love you, and I will be faithful to you, and your name will go in that book, and you are part of the family. Oh, that we would let our soul grasp that truth. The hope that our future is secure, that no matter what is going on right now, I can hold on to the fact that you have got my name, God. It's known by you. It's written in. It is there. It is secure. And I am safe in your presence that no matter what happens, my hope is in that. And that causes to me rejoice right now. Causes me to rejoice right now in that moment. As Paul writes, my names are written in that book. He's in prison as he's writing at church. Oh, I'm going to rejoice. Even though my hands and my feet are chained. Church, our hope is in a future that is secure and it brings a stability to my life in the midst of the storm. But if our future is not secure and not satisfied by God, we are going to be continually and excessively anxious. Because whatever we're putting our hope in is not steadfast. If I build all my hope on me living a happy life, what happens when something comes along and takes away that happiness? If I build all my hope on, that's what God's got planned for me. 
That's the career. That's what I've got. But it doesn't seem to be happening, God. See, we talk about exalting God, raising the rank and the position, but so easily we raise the rank and the position of all the stuff that we see around us above God, and we place our hope in that stuff. And then when that stuff fails us, suddenly we have no ability to be able to rejoice or have any joy in our life. What about that, God? You must be mad at me now, God, because, well, look what's happening in my life. Surely, God, you can never forgive me of that. We must place our sin above God's promise that if we cry out to him, he will forgive us. Surely, God, you're not with me right now. How, how can you be with me when I, I look at what's going on around me? And what ends up is either paralyzing fear or obsessive control. That's what happens. If we lose the fact that our hope is in all that he has promised. Paralyzing fear, and we end up thinking about ourselves, our future, our problems, worrying beyond that which we can cope with, or we try and control our future, control our problems, control our friends, because then we get to determine the outcome. Or if I control it all, it's all nice and neat, it all fits in perfectly, then I'm the one that's sorting it all out. Both paths cause us to stop loving without limits, because it's all about us and where we are. But for those who rejoice in hope, those who have the, the, the roots of joy being buried deep into the hope of what God has promised, you know what it means? It's the second thing that Paul mentions in this verse in Romans 12. It means we can be patient in tribulation. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Easier said than done, isn't it? Be patient in tribulation. Just be patient. John, do you know how long this has been going on? Just got to sit here and do nothing? Is that what I've got to do? Is that what I'm meant to do? The thing is, this is a doing kind of patience. What this patience means is not just sitting around waiting. When Paul uses this word patience, he uses it elsewhere in, in Romans, and, and it's, it's, it's translated endure. Endure in tribulation. Being patient is about enduring, is about abiding, is about remaining. It's not about seeking to escape the flames, but holding all the more tightly to Jesus. Every situation that causes you to doubt him should be meaning we double our efforts to get closer to him. It's the doing kind of patience that involves remaining in him. C.S. Lewis, he writes this, you'll know him for the Chronicles of Narnia, but he writes this great uh, quote, and he said, God whispers in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Pain is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Church, can I encourage you this morning and say the suffering and the pain we go through is not evidence that God is punishing us. It is his desire to get close to us. That is how we can be patient in tribulation. That God shouts to us in our pain and says, I want to get close to you. Hey, mate. Does your mommy know you're up here? Probably not. Uh, if you go by, I'm just going to compare Romans 5. Romans 5 is this other passage that Paul pretty much kind of repeats everything that he's saying in Romans 12. 
They are come upon the screen. It says this in Romans 5. Though through him, that's Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We can rejoice in hope. You see the repetition? Rejoice in hope for the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. That word suffering is tribulation. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. See, endurance, the same word of patience. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, I'm reading Romans 12, and I'm reminded of Romans 5, and I'm like, Paul, I think you've got it the wrong way round in Romans 12. If I can be as bold as to say that you're inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this stuff, I think you've got it the wrong way round. Because if we look at Romans 5, it says, look, if we can be patient in tribulation, we can rejoice in our suffering, be enduring in our suffering, something happens with hope. Something starts to develop in our hope. It says, if we rejoice in our suffering, we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Joy, hope, and patience do not come when we are free from suffering. Oh, if I could just get rid of all this stuff in my life that causes me pain, then I'm going to be happy. Bible says that's not true. Bible says hope and joy and patience come in spite of suffering and even because of tribulation. But because of those things in your life, God is doing something within you that is building something of character. But for those who are following Jesus, we're called to let our love be genuine. That means we're called to live, love, and look like Jesus more and more each and every day. And the soil in which that character is growing is the soil of suffering, the soil of tribulation, the soil of brokenness. Can I say something that some people in this church might need to hear? God is more interested in your character than your comfort. God is more interested in your character than your comfort. God wants to build something. Build something that is lasting. That is not based around what's going on in your life but in spite of it. Let me mention this. The suffering that you might be going through right now, or that, let's be honest, you will go through at some point in your life. Because it's part of life. If you're not in pain right now, let me be a, a bearer of hope, you probably will be at some point in your life. Because that's the nature of life. But some of you feel with what you're going through that God must be angry with you. I did this, therefore God is mad, bad and angry at me and he's punishing me and now doing this. And I tell you, nothing's further than the truth. Nothing can be further than the truth. All your decisions have consequences and those decisions hurt God and hurt the people around us. But what you're going through is not authored by God. Let me clarify what I mean. God is not the author of suffering, but he uses it. He uses it to develop you. The reason I know that God is not punishing you because you've done something wrong is because I can look at the life of Jesus. 
I look at the life of Jesus and I say, Jesus, your life, you were born outside of marriage, you arrived and you were put into a, a feeding trough, you were escaping for your life while the political powers tried to kill you, you ended up as a refugee in Egypt, your life wasn't free from suffering and pain and tribulation, you were arrested and then crucified. Jesus, your life wasn't pain free, but was God punishing you? You are perfect in every single way. You are God. No other human being has ever come close to Jesus. He is fully man and fully God. Was God the Father angry at him? No. But his life wasn't free from suffering and punishment. Just in case you're not convinced. The suffering and the punishment that we deserve to endure because of what we do, as a consequence of what we do, God said from the beginning of time, I'm going to sort that out. I've got it covered. The Old Testament looks forward to it. The New Testament looks at it and looks back at it. And he says from the beginning of time, I love you enough to say the punishment that should be yours because of all the stuff that you do, where I should be angry at you, all of that punishment I'm going to deal with in sending myself, sending my son, who is going to come and is going to endure and is going to die. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. Do I get an amen? Yeah. Amen. I'm going to preach for longer if you go this quietly. <laughs> See, he said, I've got it sorted. Yes, the stuff that you do should result in this punishment. But you know what? I love you enough to deal with that. And I'm going to make a way. And I'm doing it through Jesus. Instead of every moment of pain, every moment of tribulation causing us to run away from him, it's an invitation to accept the deep and transforming work of him in us. A chance to abide to allow that he who begun a good work in us will carry it through to completion. It's another one for the fridge magnet from Philippians is Paul in prison. That's why as Christians we can rejoice in tribulation. We can be patient. We can rejoice in hope. We can be patient in tribulation. And because of the future is secure, because God has already caused the punishment to be paid through his plan, which was always the plan from the beginning of time, he has got it sorted. And it's not just going, okay, well, that's a bit depressing because all of my fun, all of my hope, all of my exceeding happiness is in the future, which means right now I've got nothing. Right now I just looks miserable. If all of it's about the future, what about right now? But can I tell you, if you really are rejoicing in hope, if the hope of what God has secured in the future for you is a reality in your life, it can't help but bubble up into your life right now. I can tell you this for sure. When you see and you know that your name is in that book, your life is secure, God has got you, the punishment has been paid, suddenly that overwhelming joy starts to bubble up inside of me and I start saying, oh, in the midst of all that's going on, I can know you and rejoice you. And I said, we've had some stuff in our life, Cara and I, with people in our family that we looked at and we were just like, God, I don't know where you are right now. Feels like you have legged it, pegged it and have gone. Well, I'm just going to sit and I'm just going to ponder all that you've done, that my name is secure, that my name is with you. Oh, there's something that just comes over us as a peace and a rejoicing that we can celebrate all that God is doing. Because you know what? All this rubbish, I nearly said the word that you said last week, David, all that stuff in my life that is going on. The matter, because it's not defining me, it's not defining my joy. God, you are. See, for those that know 
that hope is secure, the future is secure, it doesn't limit our love right now, it doesn't limit our joy and how it liberates it. If you're struggling to enjoy life right now, start to ask God to make the reality of your future with him present for you right now. That it would affect how you live in this moment. That we rejoice in hope, we can be patient in tribulation, finally, and I'm landing a plane, we are coming into land, we can be constant in prayer. It's the third thing that Paul says in this verse. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. You see, prayer is where we accept that there is more than meets the eye. Prayer is where we exchange our fear for the future, for rejoicing in hope. Something happens in prayer. The place of patient endurance and tribulation, where we cease seeking to fix everything, and we offer that moment to just abiding and remaining and being still and knowing that he is God. Prayer is one of the greatest joys of my life and one of the greatest struggles. I do not stand up here as a master of prayer. I stand up here very much as a student in prayer. Someone who desperately sees its importance but struggles with it. I love it and I loathe it. I challenge myself to do it every day of every minute of every day, be constant in prayer. But I know that I don't. I'm not a master, but one thing I've been exploring this week is what it means to be constantly in prayer. Church, I, I want to see if we can be a church that's in constant prayer. And I was just in my thinking this week, and we're going to finish, but I was just thinking, what does it mean to be constantly in prayer? What does it mean to constantly be praying to God? I don't think it means that we're muttering our prayers to God all the time. God, I just pray you bless me. Just, I'm just going to constantly pray. I've run out of things to pray for, but I've been told I've got to constantly pray. So can, I, can, you, can you help? No, I can't help you. I'm praying. And oh, God, I've just stopped praying to try and have that person. God, I'm really sorry. I just stopped praying. I'm not sure that's what he means. I'm pretty positive that's not what he means. But let me just share three things that I think it means for us to be constant in prayer. I think to be constant in prayer means dependency means that we are dependent upon him. You see, my boy, he can't speak very much yet. He doesn't speak many words, and the ones that he does, it's quite hard to understand, but he's totally dependent on me. See, it's not about his words, it's about his attitude towards me. There's a deep dependency that is woven into him that he longs that his parents, and on perfect timing, my wife walks in without him. He's dependent upon us. He wakes up in the morning, early in the morning, and he screams for his parents. First thing in the morning, what does he need? He needs his mum and dad. I've got a dependency on you. I can't do anything in this day without you. It's not like he wakes up and says, right, come on, I'm a baby, let's go do this baby thing. Let's get out of this cot and let's start being a baby. Now, he is fully dependent on, sorry about the little bubble over there. For those on the front row, what was that? <laughs> He's totally dependent on his parents. The same for us as children of God. Not just first thing in the morning, but every minute of every day. I'm asking God to give me a continual awareness of my dependency on him. And when I do that, I suddenly realise, man, I've got my dependency on this. Wow, I've got dependency on, on that. Oh, help me to have my dependency fully on you. Be continuously at that place 
where I'm consciously dependent on God, where there's a deep abiding dependence on him. That when fear rises, I pray. When anxiety starts to show its face, I pray. When discouragement, when anger, we consciously and quickly turn every thought to prayer and every prayer to thanksgiving. So I'm dependent on him. Number two, prayer means constantly praying repeatedly and often. So if you look back in Romans 1, Paul talks about mentioning this church in Rome continually. In his prayers, other translations just say it as he's talking. I don't think every single minute he's saying, oh, the church in Rome. Uh, sorry, we weren't talking about the church in Rome, but that's great, I'm glad you mentioned them. I'm not sure that's what he means. But he mentioned them over and over again, and he mentioned them often. So being constant in prayer is about repeating and doing it over and over. And you see, Reuben isn't satisfied with having us as his parents just first thing in the morning. Thanks, God, about five. Thanks, God, about five minutes. Good now. Happy days. He is constantly crying out for us. And when he wants something to eat, and let me tell you, that boy can eat. I didn't know a child could eat so much. He's hungry every minute of every day. And he's crying out repeatedly and often to be with his mum and dad. To be constant in prayer and repeating and often. Ian, can you come up to the place where we just lull these people into thinking I'm finishing? <laughs> Final thing, and we are finished. And then we're just going to quickly pray for the people and then we can head out. Constant in prayer means not giving up on prayer. To be constant in prayer means not giving up on prayer. Whatever happens, don't stop praying. Whatever happens in your life, don't get to a place where you say, what's the point? It's not doing anything. What's the point? There's no use in praying. Jesus makes this point in Luke 18. He tells this parable, this story. And he says at the start of it, it says in Luke 18 verse 1, it says, Jesus told them a story showing that it is necessary for them to pray consistently and never quit. Never give up on praying. And he said there was once a church in some city who never gave a thought of God and cared nothing for people. A widow in that city kept after him. My rights are being violated. Protect me. He never gave her the time of day. But after this, he went on and he said to himself, I care nothing what God thinks, even less what people think. But because this widow won't quit badgering me, I'd better do something to see if she gets justice. Otherwise, I'm going to be beaten up by Gimblin. It's like... Jesus is clearly wanting us to link this judge with God. This judge who actually is nothing like God. So he isn't God. It's not a picture for God because he says he cares nothing for humanity and he doesn't, he doesn't care about God. He cares even less for humanity. So he's clearly not God. What this parable is saying is if a corrupt and unjust and limited in his power judge could do this for that woman, just think what a God of integrity, a God who is infinite in power, could do for you when you cry out to him. When we cry out in prayer, the point of the parable is to say if persistence pays off with a corrupt human with limited power, how much will it pay off with a just God of infinite power? It goes on in verse 6, and the master said, do you hear what that judge corrupt as he is is saying. So what makes you think God won't step in and work justice with his chosen people who continue to cry out for help 
Once you stick up for them, I assure you, he will. And he has, I tell you. He will not drag his feet. But how much of that kind of persistent faith will the Son of Man find on the earth when he returns? Church, I am praying that we are that kind of church. That when the Son of Man returns, if we are here in this context, if not, then I know he can't hold it against me when he says, John, why don't you persist in your faith? I'm going to pray about everything consistently, regularly, often. Sometimes my prayers are going to be so way off and God's like, you haven't got a clue, John, but well done in persisting. He can't hold that against me. I'm just going to pray. Let's not be a church that talk about praying, but actually do it very, very little. Oh, we believe in the power of prayer. Do we do it? Not really. Should I think about praying? I'll be honest, think about it a lot. But do we actually do it? Corrie Ten Booth, great quote, she says, let's not allow prayer to be the spare wheel of our life. Let's allow it to be the steering wheel of our life, directing where we go. If you're struggling to rejoice in hope, if you are in the midst of trying to be patient in tribulation, can I ask you, turn to God in prayer, get on your knees, learn what it is to have full dependence on Him, repeat those prayers often, badge your God about it, even if you're not right in what you're praying, God's not going to turn you away. Through your prayer, he'll start to correct you, start to lead you, start to develop character in you. Constant in prayer. Church, if you're willing and able, should stand together. As I was writing this talk, my heart was just starting to stir. I was asking God, who should we pray for? God, there's going to be some people at church on Sunday morning that are going to need some prayer. Who should we pray for? And I just felt in that moment just the whisper of God say, pray for those where hope has gone. Pray for those who have lost all hope. reality or just because of the way you're living your life, we can show that we've lost hope, that our dependency isn't fully on him, that we're looking at our circumstances to find our joy. If that's you, I just invite you to close your eyes. Just posture yourself to receive from God, whatever that means for you, it might mean hand out, it might mean just opening your heart right now, and I encourage you, just start to pray, just start to say, God, I open my heart to you, Holy Spirit, right? I hate it when my daughter lies. She's learning what that word means. I think sometimes we can approach God and we present a bit of a lie to Him. Say, God, I live together, but it all sorts of, all makes sense. Thanks, God. Are you good? And we're afraid to show God the anger that's inside of us that He didn't pull through for us in that moment. That you prayed for this thing and it didn't happen. God, I'm not meant to have my joy really in my circumstances, but my circumstances have been rubbish for a long, long time. Don't let your hope dissolve. God, for those who are in this room right now where hope is lost, we start to revive 
Start to feel light, that first time. 